Thank you very much. We love you. Thank you very much. We'll see you soon. We'll see you on the trail. And thank you, everybody. Thank you very much. Good morning and welcome to Rising. It's New Hampshire primary reaction day. That was former President Donald Trump celebrating his big win. Good morning, Brianna. Good morning, Robbie. Should we get right into it? Let's get into it. In a surprise to perhaps no one, President Donald Trump made away with half of New Hampshire voter support yesterday, trouncing his only remaining primary opponent, Nikki Haley, by nearly 14 points. Haley, nonetheless, showed no signs of slowing down her campaign while speaking to supporters after her loss. <sighs> What a great night. God is so good all the time. Thank you, New Hampshire, for the love, the kindness, the support, and a great night here tonight. Thank you so much. New Hampshire is first in the nation. It is not the last in the nation. This race is far from over. There are dozens of states left to go. Trump, of course, didn't miss the opportunity to take some shots at Nikki from the podium. He said, wow, what a great victory. But then somebody ran up to the stage all dressed up nicely <laughs> when it was at 7. But now I just walked up and it's at 14. But, but she ran up when it was 7. And, you know, we have to do what's good for our party. And she was up and I said, wow, she's doing uh, like a speech like she won. She didn't win. She lost. Now over on the Democratic side of things, President Biden bested his challengers and won the primary with 51 percent of the vote via a write-in campaign. We're going to take a deep dive into how Biden supporters pulled that off with the help of a super PAC with Alex Salmon from Slate later in the show. For now, we want to get into this clip of Dean Phillips, who earned 19 percent of the Democratic vote last night. He let his party have it over their treatment of Trump supporters. We have a crisis of participation. And I got to tell you guys, I went to a Donald Trump rally a couple nights ago. Never been to one. Uh, I had an event across the street. I saw the line of people waiting in the cold for hours. And I thought, what the heck? You know, I'm going to be a leader who actually invites people, doesn't condemn them. Met probably 50 Trump people waiting in line. Every single one of them, thoughtful, hospitable, friendly. All of them so frustrated that they feel nobody's listening to them but Donald Trump. A diverse crowd, people who had never been to a Trump event before. My party is completely delusional right now. It is interesting to watch um, Dean Phillips' evolution of understanding that uh, voters like to be heard, and the Democratic Party has been spending more time demonizing half of the country than actually considering why the Trump phenomenon is so appealing to so many folks, and why it is that people aren't just attracted to Trump, but disappointed by and fleeing the Democratic Party, and why people are increasingly uh, identifying as independents. I mean, I would have liked for him to go through this realization back in 2016, the way that most leftists had an analysis of why it was that Bernie and Trump were arising at the same time, and what this populist move movement was all about. But hey, better late never. Sure. Yeah, we're going to get more into those results in a minute. Um, let's look at Nikki Haley, Donald Trump, last two on the Republican side. Um, look, Nikki Haley 
had a impressive showing, I guess. Obviously, she had a lot riding on New Hampshire. Um, this was going to be the environment by far that was most favorable to her. It was uh, where uh, John McCain won, as I said the other day, in 2008. Um, and Nikki Haley is very similar ideologically to John McCain. A lot of independence in New Hampshire. Um, this was where she was going to fare the best, and she pulled a lot of resources into doing so, and, you know, her, her in, in the end, that's what she got. But she didn't win. Trump did, in fact, win. A win is a win. Uh, he won Iowa. He won New Hampshire. He's going to win in South Carolina. There is no—there's uh, just no way you can spin this or look at this other than it's, it's Trump's party, it's Trump's nomination— Well, here's how. —unless they take it away—unless the he, deep state takes it away well, from them. Well, here's, here's exactly how you spin it. You do what Nikki Haley did, which is make your speech as early in the night as possible when the gap uh, between you and Trump is as slender as possible. You champion the fact that whether it's a 7 percent or a 14 percent spread, you've come closer than any contender in a very, very long time. And touching Trump's coattails after—we've got to remember a year of campaigning when many people did not think that she, of all of the people in the field, was going to be the one who could get this far. And you keep your eye on the fact that South Carolina is coming up next, and it is your home state. Now, to your point, Trump, the, right, the, so the average— so when she gets destroyed, The 538 average in South Carolina right now has six, uh, Trump at 62 percent and Haley at 25 percent. So it doesn't look good. But con compared to some of the other upcoming contests she could have, I understand why you would want to stay in the race, at least until you have more conversations with your donors and supporters to see if they're willing to stick with it through you, with you, stick through it with you, because there is this large group of very affluent, more moderate Republicans who would prefer to get off the Trump train. So it really is contingent, I think, on her donors, and it's her job to just hold space until they decide what they're going to do. Yeah, look, I, it doesn't belong to Trump. She can stay in as long as she likes, and and frankly, the elephant in the room being the the prosecutions and the placing his name on the ballot matter, there's a better case than normal that you want someone else in the field in case that happens, although that happening would be Yeah, it's crazy, squatting rights. But it could happen. But I don't, I don't see any conceivable way, I just don't, that in an in a actual head-to-head -head match, when it, just with the voting, just with the primaries, she could hope possibly ever to defeat Donald Trump. This was the best showing she will have, and it wasn't enough. Looking at some of these exit polls, is, it's interesting to see if you can glean any insights about uh, what the electorate is doing, generally speaking, where Trump is stronger, where uh, Haley is stronger. She edged out Trump a little bit uh, with women, 48 uh, percent of women to his 40 uh, percent of women, edged um, out him out a little bit with uh, non-white voters edged him out uh, a little bit uh, with—surprisingly, he—Trump actually did better with younger voters than Nikki Haley. But perhaps it's not so surprising when you look at the fact that she performed better with more affluent voters than Trump did. And, of course, older people in affluence tends to come together. Well, Sorry, and I pointed millennials. out before that, <laughs> that uh, young people on the right seem especially—the the, the more online you are, the more involved in social media. And if, and if you're on the right and you're very anti-wokeness, anti-DEI, those top—you know, Vivek has a lot of support from those same people, those are that is not Nikki's crowd, so that right. doesn't surprise me. But the biggest, the biggest factor that, of course, all of the Republicans are pointing to right now is the fact that Nikki Haley had 88 uh, percent of voters that identified as Democrats to Trump's five percent, um, and only 25 percent of voters that identified as Republicans compared to 74 percent. She did get 60 percent of independents compared to 38 percent. But New Hampshire is a state where there are a huge number of basically Democrats who identify as independents. So that explains what her successes yeah. is in this are in this state, and doesn't pretend it doesn't bode well for her in states that are she, less independent, 
like New Hampshire. Look, there's, she would certainly be a very strong general election candidate. <laughs> she gets a lot of independent support, some Democratic support. The polls show her beating Joe Biden e by an even greater margin than Donald Trump beats Joe Biden. But in right. fact, Donald Trump is up over Joe Biden as well. And Donald Trump has not total control, but enough control over the Republican Party and, and enough love still from Republican primary voters that I don't see any way he's not the nominee at this point, so, other than yeah. interference from, from without. So that's largely the pitch he's going to be making heading into uh, South Carolina. Uh, uh, new ads are up. Uh, Alex Thompson um, over at—is he still at Politico? Uh, no, he's at Axios. Uh, posted some transcripts of her new ads where you can get a sense of what her framing is. She's framing it as, as the choice that nobody wants, which is true based on polls. And nobody wants this 20, uh, uh, 20 matchup between Biden and Trump again. She points to their age, says that she's a younger candidate, a stronger candidate. Not um, according to Don Lemon, but sure. <laughs> Well, even even acknowledge it as a relative yes. metric. I mean, I saw an MSNBC um, panel last night where they observed that Bill Clinton, who hasn't been president for 25 years, is younger than both of the candidates <laughs> yeah. that are likely to be yeah. the nominees in this well, Al Gore as well. Yeah. 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 There's a lot of political figures from the 90s who are, uh, who are not so ancient as the two people who are just about guaranteed to be our nominees. Yeah. So we will... Continue to pay attention to that. We'll have more to say on the Democratic side. Very interesting write-in campaigns going on. We'll tell you all about it. More rising right after this. Last night saw the first in the nation primaries in New Hampshire, one officially sanctioned, the other not officially sanctioned, while the GOP allowed challenger and underdog Nikki Haley to test her mettle against former President Donald Trump. The DNC shifted its primary schedule to make the first official primary in South Carolina, meaning that the president's name did not appear on this New Hampshire ballot. Uh, now, some Democratic politicos saw the decision to strip the Granite State of its first-in-the-nation status as a massive mistake. For all Biden struggling in the polls, here's longtime New Hampshire radio pundit Arnie Arneson. He doesn't gain anything with South Carolina, but he would have gained something by having another message coming out of Iowa, coming out of New Hampshire, as they were focusing on what the choice would be in 2024 for president. It was a stupid political mistake. That doesn't mean that we should always be first, but not in 2024 with Trump running for president again. This is a threat to democracy. This is an invitation to fascism. We could look at a country that we will not recognize after the November election. God forbid Trump wins. Now, according to reporting from Slate's Alex Salmon, Biden's big win last night was the result of a massive AstroTurf campaign backed by the second biggest spending super PAC in the state, not some organic show of affinity for the president. The gambit seems to have paid off. Biden won the primary with a little more than 50 percent of the vote. Here to break down how Biden pulled it off is politics writer over at Slate, Alex Salmon. Welcome to Rising, Alex. Hey, thanks so much for having me. So, Alex, I have heard some uh, Democratic pundits really championing, really celebrating the outcome last night, saying that this is evidence of how much Democratic voters actually have organic enthusiasm for Joe Biden, that he managed to win with these margins despite not uh, being on the ballot in New Hampshire. What's wrong with that take? Yeah, I mean, I think that, that, right, there's this story that they want to tell, that there is this efflorescence of love for Biden that, that seems to be just lurking beneath the surface of all these terrible polls. Um, and that's what we saw in New Hampshire. And it's just not exactly correct. I mean, Biden did perform pretty well there, 
but it's not like his team left this up to chance. Uh, they put together a, a pretty significant effort um, to drum up support for the president to write in his name on the ballot. And we saw like pretty much an all hands on deck approach that included nine cabinet, cabinet secretaries, included pretty much all the biggest names in the House on the Democratic side, uh, as well as all the the uh, the sort of top most popular uh, Democratic governors in the country, uh, and then also this big super PAC effort as well. So we're talking about substantial spending. We're talking about a lot of campaigning, uh, and it was all done sort of unofficially because the president can't campaign in uh, New Hampshire based on DNC rules. But uh, but they didn't leave this thing up to chance. They 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 really took it seriously. What are we to make of the Dean Phillips showing? 19.6 percent. Um, to my mind, that's not nothing. That's kind of significant given his low recognition. Now, I know he's been uh, low name recognition. I know he's been spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. Um, how are we to feel about, you know, some of these results for Marion Williamson is down below 5 percent? And then, of course, there's this unprocessed write-in total. Uh, maybe you can talk about that as well. Right. Yeah. The, the Dean Phillips number, I think, is 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 hard to to make draw any any real strong conclusion from. I think right, it's not nothing. It's a substantial uh, percentage of the vote. Twenty percent, I think, is sort of where he's sitting. Uh, they that th their campaign likes that. The, the Phillips people seem to be pretty happy with that. Um, at the same time, they were all in on New Hampshire. Right. It was this was the entire sort of operation was uh, predicated on doing well here. Uh, is 20% well? I mean, it's something. It's not It's not a blowout. It's not terrible. So I think there'll be an attempt to spin this, obviously, as a, as a real triumph. I think you'll hear a lot of people say, well, it's got to be over now, right? Uh, and, and Phillips did have a lot of money, right? He has two big super PACs who are backing him. They were on TV. I don't know if anyone else was on TV. Um, again, I, it's hard for me to say one way or the other. I, it sounds like they're going to keep going, but, you know, this was, this was the big stand, um, and it might be the best Phillips does in any given state, so... Um, yeah, on the other hand, right, I don't think the Williamson campaign seemed terribly competitive, um, and we didn't really see that in the returns. And then the sort of interesting footnote here was the, the ceasefire write-in campaign, which has gotten some attention in the last handful of days. We don't really know, again, how that did. We have a sort of unprocessed write-in total, which is being sorted, I think, as we speak. Um, it seems like some percentage of voters wrote in ceasefire, um, but again, it wasn't an overwhelming result. I don't think anyone expected it to be. It was a, you know, a, a truly grassroots campaign that sort of sprung up in the last couple of days. So, yeah, it's interesting that there was a petition by a pro-Israel group for those ceasefire votes not to be counted at all. But New Hampshire uh, state officials decided that they were going to tally them as it was part of an actual organized movement. So we'll see what percentage of the about thirty. Um, uh, write-in votes that were not Biden write-in votes actually were these ceasefire votes that were supposed to signal um, a demand for the uh, siege to stop in Gaza. I want to come back to this question of how to interpret the results here. You mentioned that Dean Phillips was on TV. Dean Phillips um, is a multimillionaire. Um, I think he has between 60 and 70 or 80 uh, million dollars net worth. And he has pledged, um, largely self-funded but not exclusively self-funded, to stay through the race to the convention and has the ability to to do not only that, but to get on TV. He spent $2.7 across the state on TV, radio, and digital ads. I don't know that Marion Williamson was ever able to get on TV. And similarly, the super PAC that you described that was working independently for Joe Biden in the state was also able to spend, it seems, um, about $1.26 million on mailers, radio, and digital advertising, phone banking, and more. Is the story here that 
if you spend enough money, you can make a dent uh, electorally? Yeah, it's an interesting. This is an interesting plot line, I think, in this election cycle, because we've seen actually the huge money candidates really fall on their faces. Right. Ron DeSantis is like, you know, the sort of great exemplar of this um, just incredible war chest uh, on TV everywhere, willing to spend pretty much infinitely uh, and didn't even make it past Iowa. Right. So so there are, there are limitations to, to, the, to the impact that money has, like the way it's deployed makes a difference. Um, and you you can't just straight up buy the result. Uh, we've seen this sort of repeatedly. It's true with Nikki Haley as well, who has a ton of money. Um, and so it's it's sort of a yes and no thing. It's, it, obviously, money makes a difference. It, it is really important. Um, it's no surprise to me that the two top spenders in New Hampshire were the two top finishers, right? Like the the, the two super PACs that spent the most money were uh, Dean Phillips' super, super PAC, one of his two, and, and then uh, the super PAC that was backing Biden. Um, and uh, so, yeah, so it, obviously the, the, this is an impact it, it has an impact. It's important. Isn't the whole story in the sense that you can't um, you can't just oftentimes just buy the result out of nothing. Um, but, you know, having money makes it goes a long way. And uh, and when you have obviously then the, all the institutional backing like Biden has of, of, you know, every major Democrat in the country, phone banking for him doing uh, events, uh, you know, burnishing his credentials, um, that stuff matters. And it helped Team Phillips as well, obviously, because, right, this is someone with no name recognition, no real credentials. I mean, certainly, you know, a platform that seems to be pretty much uh, being conjured out of thin air oftentimes as as he speaks, uh, you know, to finish second like that is also, you know, the result of having some serious funding. So Biden has never done well in New Hampshire, frankly, any of the times he's um, run for president here. OK, he wasn't even, you know, he can say we weren't even trying. People had to write my name in and I won. Does this put um, Team Biden at ease at all, you know, in a time where day after day that just the, the poll numbers uh, against uh, against Trump or against Haley or whoever it's going to be, it's likely going to be Trump, but are, are so bad nationally and so bad in swing states. Is this the first bit of like not bad news they've had in weeks? I think that they feel like that. I think that they, they feel really strong about this this outcome. I mean, right, they, they didn't have to outspend Dean Phillips 10 to 1, right, to, to, to get this. So um, I think they feel a lot of confidence about this. I mean, the funny thing about it from my mind is that, you know, Biden obviously moved to relocate the first in the nation primary to South Carolina to get out of New Hampshire. If you look demographically at New Hampshire, it's a place where Biden should do really well. I mean, it actually, if he had just left it as is, uh, you would expect it's, it's the perfect place for him to overperform because it's it's very white, it's very old. I mean, it's it's in the top ten uh, states nationally in terms of you know uh, having older voters and and whiter voters. Um, it's also pretty heavily uh, college educated. Those are all things where Biden is going to massively overperform based on his really terrible polling with young voters, with uh, Hispanic and and black voters. Um, you know. This is where Biden should thrive, and so it, you know, if, if left to to the to the natural state of things, I think he would have been in a position to do really well here. Of course, then there were all all these sort of machinations, and they had to try to move it to South Carolina. It didn't work, um, and so it ends up being sort of a, a, only a sort of potential for embarrassment. Um, I don't think they're embarrassed today. I think they feel like they sort of like weathered that storm, and and they feel pretty good about it. But. Um, didn't have to be this complicated is maybe the shortest way of saying that. Yeah, it is interesting. I mean, we should note that Biden came in fifth place in New Hampshire in 2020, which is probably why there was some anxiety over it. It's not clear to me that just because Biden is himself white and old that he necessarily overperforms when there's other factors like 
uh, voters that lean independent. So back in 2020, part of the issue was that Bernie does very well with independent voters, and that's part of why he was so successful in New Hampshire that time around. I, I, I completely agree with you, though, that it seems, especially in hindsight now, incredibly likely that Biden would have won without having the whole media cycle and the impression of, of rigging the primaries, um, changing the primary schedule, just so that he could get, I guess, a clearer win in South Carolina, where he really has the benefit of a lot of local networks and local endorsements that I think really put him across the finish line in 2020 um, and cemented his, uh, his, his, his lead in 2020, despite having performed so poorly in New Hampshire. Uh, but thank you, Alex, for helping us to work through some of this. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for having me. We have some updates from Israel and Palestine to get to. The Israeli military says it has killed 9,000 Hamas fighters and has degraded the group's capabilities since October 7th. But officials told The Washington Post that Israeli defense forces say these gains could be threatened by the government's lack of a post-war strategy, according to The Post. Israel says it is moving away from large-scale bombardments and toward targeted raids. 24 Israeli soldiers were killed during fighting in Gaza on Monday, per the IDF, the Israeli military's deadliest day since the fighting renewed after October 7th. The IDF says most of the soldiers were killed in a terrorist blast while, quote, clearing out a buffer zone. They were setting charges to blow up residential housing. The IDF charges were then ignited by an RPG, killing over 20 soldiers. On Tuesday, John Kirby criticized Israel's plan for a buffer zone in Gaza, saying the plan goes against the Biden administration's policy, saying, quote, we do not want to see the territory of Gaza reduced in any way. We won't support that. Meanwhile, medical personnel in Gaza say at least 40 Palestinians were killed in Yan Khan Yunus yesterday, which was once designated a safe space for Palestinian evacuees. Al Jazeera reports that Nasser Hospital has come under fire as Israeli forces push to encircle the city, creating brutal conditions for medical workers and threatening to knock out one of Gaza's few remaining functional hospitals. Yesterday, displaced Gazans protest the lack of humanitarian aid entering the Strip and demanded an immediate ceasefire and return to their homes. Meanwhile, stateside, the Democratic Majority for Israel PAC is trying to stop New Hampshire, uh, state of New Hampshire, from even tallying right and votes cast for a ceasefire. Yeah, there's a lot going on here. Uh, in, in a clip that we can't show because we don't have the rights to it, there was a protest um, around all of the aid trucks that are lined up outside of Gaza and able to get in of some um, uh, Israelis protesting the idea that they would come in. This is obviously a contentious issue. And the um, large Israeli—the uh, IDF death toll, the largest of the conflict for Israel so far, has come under some scrutiny and been a, a, a subject of some controversy because the 20-plus soldiers that were killed were laying these— charges in residential housing, and that they an RPG set off their own charges, and that's what ended up killing the, the IDF soldiers. So there was, this, there was this question now brought into focus of whether or not the act of blowing up residential housing, setting charges, walking away, and just doing demolition, demolition on houses is, one, well-tailored to actually targeting Hamas. If you're in a house, you're laying charges. Is there really a strong argument that Hamas are lying in wait in the basement or in tunnels? And two, uh, whether or not the practice of clearing a buffer zone, which Israel has now admitted to, um, is 
in, in con conducive with international law, and whether it's a fl flagrant um, kind of thumbing the nose at what Americans have said, their political objective, their um, uh, uh, broader objectives are in Gaza, which is not to decrease the land size of Gaza and allow more kind of territorial expansion of Israel into the occupied territory. Yeah, it again shows that Israel is going to go its own way, has its own plan. Uh, the Netanyahu government is committed to doing what it's doing, even um, as the um, as American officials are increasingly dissatisfied with the approach and um, wanting um, right not to create a buffer zone, um, rejecting some of the uh, rhetoric that uh, Netanyahu has used, specifically saying there will not be a two-state solution. That is objectly contrary to what President Biden's um, position on the conflict is, but we continue to offer unqualified support, and it, it doesn't seem to face um, face Netanyahu at all that we're upset he's going to continue doing what he's doing, and we have no ability to change his mind or grapple with the situation. Well, we do. We could stop providing the bombs that are being dropped on Gaza and stop providing the no, I, what I mean, billion dollars worth of funding. Yes, but the Biden administration is not willing to do that, it seems. Right. But it has the ability to do it. It's a really important distinction there, because everything that is happening is done with with the Biden administration's tacit approval, explicit approval, if you really want to read into it, because it could not be done without America's support, not just its literal support in terms of financing and bombs, but also the cover that the United States is giving to Israel and the international stage uh, in the U.N. with its vetoes um, of any kind of investigation of a ceasefire, all of the uh, kinds of resolutions that have come before the U.N. in the last three months. It's also worth picking up on, I think, something interesting that we said in our read here, um, that Israel is saying that it's moving away from large-scale bombardments into war-targeted raids. Again, this is a kind of an admission that what they were doing was non-targeted before and raises some questions, questions that are before the ICJ right now, as to whether or not what Israel is doing has ever been, during the course of this campaign, targeted to get Hamas, or whether or not it's a broader bombardment that's intended to do something along the lines of ethnic cleansing and or genocide, especially when you look at the enormously disproportional um, Hamas, uh, you know, combatants to civilian kill ratios, and, of course, the ongoing accusations of collective punishment with denying the aid, the medical supplies, the water, the food, et cetera, to the region. Yeah, I mean, the thing to note about the, you know, the targeted raids, raids involving people, is they're actually more dangerous for the Israeli soldiers as well, as this shows, the greatest day of violence for the IDF forces. Um, going in, actually mobilizing ground troops, doing door-to-door -door, um, uh, man maneuvers with actual soldiers risks their lives. So they are, they're going to have to, Right, you but know, to be clear, they're, you know— it, it, loss of life is tragic, but 24—the uh, front page news is that 24 IDF soldiers uh, were killed by their own explosives. To be clear, they weren't engaged in any armed combat. They were, they were killed by the explosives they were setting to use to blow up residential housing in, in Gaza. But also that, you know, 250-odd Palestinians are killed every single day in Gaza, and those lives are considered to be kind of grandfathered in. In fact, we have a clip of a, a particularly galling clip of a 51-year-old man um, waving a white flag. He had just finished conducting an interview with ITV, said he was going to try to rescue his family members um, and to evacuate them in Yankunas. His name was Ramzi Abu Shalul. He was a 15-year-old, a 51-year-old clothes seller. After—we're going to see this in a clip—after he finishes uh, conducting this interview, turns and walks away, waving a white flag to go get his family members. And you see him gunned down, seemingly just in cold blood, by the IDF. Let's take a look.
members and get them out of harm's way. The interview complete, our cameraman walked away. And then this happened. Now, British outlet The Independent um, uh, covered this and spoke to a human rights lawyer named Michael Mansfield, uh, who said the footage was compelling evidence of a war crime, saying, quote, this group of five people are unarmed. They didn't have weapons of any kind. They are waving a white flag. They do not present a threat. So to shoot them without warning just like that, it is an execution. Now, keep in mind that Bernie tried to pass a resolution just to look into the idea of whether or not Israel is committing war crimes with money that the U.S. is sending them. A bipartisan um, vote of Congress struck that down. Meanwhile, uh, Americans are seeing footage like this. I think that largely explains why the desire for a ceasefire is so high in the, in the United States and why, frankly, it's uh, really a political albatross for Joe Biden. I just I want to pick back up on something you said a few minutes ago. I mean, they were the Israeli soldiers who were killed. They didn't, like, accidentally light their own explosives and blow themselves up. They were in a firefight. They were fighting an RPG, Gaza militants an, that an RPG struck the, hit they struck the explosives. their explosives and it caused the building to collapse on them. Yeah. Right. So, they, they, I mean, they were—so it's a—they're it, combat deaths, which was my point, that—, that Sending in ground troops is in, is increasingly dangerous for the soldiers as well, and Israel might want to take that into consideration. They have been taking that into consideration. I think that's why they've been doing all of these bombardments, which, you know, preserve uh, Israeli life. And if you think that preserving Israeli life is more important than not killing tens of thousands no, of innocent civilians— No, I think preserving both lives is important, and that's why a ceasefire would be great, and we would love for that to happen, and Israel has offered to end— the war immediately, if the senior leadership of Hamas goes into exile, surrenders, including the organizer of the October 7th attack. So it's on them for refusing to do that. And every death that, in, that happens as they wait that out is their fault. You've been very clear on that position, and I think it's an immoral one, but we'll continue to disagree about that going forward. More Rising View after this. Kentucky Senator Rand Paul, who we've had on here many times on Rising, appeared on Tucker Carlson's Twitter show yesterday and discussed his never Nikki moment. It gets to me when I see people who I think care more about the borders of Ukraine than they care about our own southern border. And I see these people every day because they're the entire Democrat caucus up here, but they're half of my caucus. Half of my yes. Republican caucus is, as we speak, ready to sell out and they're ready to sell out fake border reform in exchange for what they really want, which is to send more of your tax dollars to Ukraine. I think Nikki Haley fits right in that camp. I think she's from the, she's from the McConnell, Dick Cheney wing of the party. And this is the antithesis of everything I believe in. I've spent uh, a few years trying to promote the ideas of liberty. There is a wing of the party that believes in that. And I want to make sure anybody that follows the, the, what I do knows that there's no way, shape, or form I could support Nikki Haley. Senator Rand Paul also accused Dr. Anthony Fauci of enriching himself during the pandemic, lying to Congress, and said Fauci deserves to be in prison. We're not sure that Anthony Fauci is not still being paid. We've asked whether he's being paid, and we've asked who's paying for his security. We do know that when he was active, he made about 
between him and his wife. His wife was in charge of ethics. So if there was ever a problem with Anthony Fauci not being ethical, his wife would review the ethics, which I'm sure she was pure to, you know, sure to tell him that if he was doing anything unethical. But their combined salary is about 800000 His wealth went from $7 million to $12 million during the pandemic. He got a million-dollar prize from a private foundation. What kind of what kind of uh, person, civil servants, allowed to take a million-dollar prize? Did anybody investigate whether the foundation has anything to do with pharma? We now have money going from the vaccine manufacturers to NIH. Anthony Fauci lied to Congress, and the bottom line is he deserves to be in prison. Uh, if he'd have been a Trump supporter, he'd have been in prison long ago. So I think the... Um Never Nikki movement, of which there are a number of Republican officials, including um, Rand Paul, Thomas Massey, Chip Roy, the more libertarian or non-interventionist uh, wing of the conservative movement, um, is uh, should be satisfied that uh, I think New Hampshire is going to be her best showing. Remains a open question whether she gets a seat on the Trump uh, ticket, as some people think, um, but. Trump's been spending a lot of time with Tim Scott, so maybe he's leaning more in that direction. But um, it, it, you know, goes to show the sincere um, difference of opinion on a lot of issues, but including foreign policy, that um, that divides uh, the Republican Party. Um, Nikki Haley very much uh, hailing from the, uh, the kind of Bush uh, neoconservative um, side of those things, uh, which is not where Rand is and where Trump is and some others. What does it mean to have a Never Nikki movement that is uh, focused on Nikki Haley's desire to continue to, sp to spend money abroad, that ignores the overwhelming consistency between Donald Trump, Nikki Haley, and the rest of the bipartisan blob when it comes to funding Israel at much higher levels historically and throughout this um, time period than, it has, uh, than the U.S. has funded to Ukraine? I mean, I don't know that that characterizes some of these never Nikki folks. I, I can't, obviously can't speak for Rand Paul. I think he has criticized um, U.S. Um, Iron Dome funding in the past. Um, I, Thomas Massey was one of was the only Republican in the House to join but, with. But Donald um, Trump was the alternative to Nikki, right? Yes. To Nikki Haley. So Donald Trump never put a finger on Israel funding. Has said he is a very close supporter of Israel, supported the movement of the, um, uh, the embassy to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. all of those things, and has, I think, notably not been as vocal about this particular issue because I think he understands there's hypocrisy here and that it's a third rail. But at the end of the day, has shown no indication that he would depart from his own record of when he was president or the record of Nikki Haley or anybody else uh, in the Republican Party, in the, in the establishment Republican Party. I, I, I saw this tweet from Tulsi Gabbard a couple of days ago. She tweeted, Nikki Haley is no different from Liz Cheney and Hillary Clinton, women who have never served in the military and feel the need to prove how tough they are by always advocating for more war. To the voters of New Hampshire, please know that a vote for Haley is a vote for endless and bigger wars. Again, it does seem like this is an argument that lands when we're talking about Ukraine, where all of these people have mm -hmm. been consistent, but they've been widely inconsistent when it comes to their perspective on what's going on in Israel. Well, again, all of these people have been inconsistent. I'm not sure that's true of Rand Paul and some of these other figures. I certainly wish Donald right. Trump would be—let me finish. I certainly think and wish Donald Trump would also—would um, uh, extend his non-interventionist um, sentiments to other countries, including Israel. Donald Trump has been willing to criticize Netanyahu. That was actually his gut reaction to October 7th, was to say this is a massive intelligence failure that um, Netanyahu deserves 
blame for, I think it's hard to predict how he would have handled um, what Israel is doing right now if, if Donald Trump were president. And f frankly, I would love to hear more from him on the subject. I wish he would participate in the debates and field questions about that. And that would perhaps present more of a contrast with Nikki Haley. Or we'd find out he's exactly on board with her or exactly on board with Joe Biden. I, I don't know. I think we sh I, I would like to hear more from him on the subject. I think he's somewhat of a, of a wild card. The point I'm making is not about them individually, but to have a ne never Haley movement, a never Nikki movement that says we cannot have her and the alternative is Donald Trump, while not also having a never Trump movement, Ryan Paul could easily be advocating for never Trump and in favor of a libertarian candidate that actually was consistent about these two wars in these two regions of the world. But this is being framed very much as an effort to stop Nikki Haley as the kind of repository for all centrist, conservative uh, political interest in this moment in favor of Donald Trump. And I'm just curious how that works, given that their views when it comes to foreign policy are widely um, consistent with respect to Israel, not Ukraine, but with respect to Israel, and how we can have the selective blindness when it's the, the most high-profile conflict that's happening right now um, in the United selective. States. Should, Donald Trump is more—you like. You don't have to— agree with him, or you can think that other aspects of him make him the worst choice, but on foreign policy, while very far still from what I, as a libertarian, would think is the ideal American foreign policy, he is better than Nikki Haley. Maybe he's inconsistent, and he, I think, as president, he didn't always follow through on some of the uh, non-interventionist commitments he articulated. but. Nikki Haley is across the board. I mean, you'd rather have someone who is who is weakly or 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 um, or inconsistently committed to intervention than someone who is actually committed to it as a matter of ideological principle, as Nikki Haley is. So I don't find it that weird. All um, right. As for the Fauci stuff, obviously um, Rand Paul has been sounding that um, alarm for a long time. Um, the uh, the the. The lying to Congress charge, which I think is very serious and gets more and more plausible the more we, we learn about, uh, you know, Fauci famously trying to split hairs over what counts as gain-of-function research, saying we didn't fund it in Wuhan, that never happened. And we, as we continue to um, process more and more information about exactly what research uh, we, we in, they, in fact, did seek funding to do, what everything they tried to do. So if you're being... You know, the best you can say, I think, for Fauci at this point is that he genuinely—he didn't know. He claims, you know, he signed off on all these um, gain-of-function projects um, uh, that during the ban that, that were consistent with the exception that was allowed by law, and he can't remember what he approved and that sort of thing. Mm, I wonder if they're going to get him. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. You know, I sit here. I, I just don't have—I I, I think all these people have made their views really clear that they want him to go to jail. Either they can— find some charge that actually sticks, that is, that he broke the law and they can get him uh, prosecuted or, or not. So um, a lot of disappointment in Dr. Fauci. Seems the resentments haven't gone anywhere. It seems a little bit, I, I got to say, coming back to the first issue, a distraction where there's actual action to be taken on whether or not uh, America sends more billion dollars of aid packages out the door um, under a bipartisan consensus under the under the Biden administration and likely under the future Trump administration, because that's what happened under the last Trump administration. Um, but, you know. I mean, but they're, they're trying to— they're, they're trying to get Trump instead of Haley, which I think is happy, likely to happen by default, but um, in, in part because there's a greater chance of, of, of having less of the things you say you oppose versus Nikki Haley. Right, but you can't frame it as this guy is an anti-interventionist. He's good on anti-intervention, anti unlike 
uh, Nikki Haley when he has a colossal blot on his record. As He's not anti-interventionist. He just doesn't like the war in Ukraine. And that's what's dangerous, because there's a genuine populist movement of people who are anti-interventionist, and there's candidates out there that could be getting support from loud voices like uh, like Rand Paul or, or Tulsi Gabbard or others who would actually, in principle, look at whether or not we need to spend billions of dollars creating massive unrest in regions on the other side of the world that can draw us into a World War III. That is a legitimate concern, and I, can, I have concerns about it being co-opted by people who want to use it for political ends to elect a president who is going to continue along that very same trend. That's my only point. We can agree to disagree. All right. Stick I would around. Say, oh, yeah. go ahead. I would just say they're using it, again, it was a it was a never—when Rand Paul declared that, he declared it, frankly, at a time when there were other Republican candidates still in the race, Ron DeSantis, Vivek, et cetera. It is a crusade against one specific candidate who there is a guarantee will be the most hawkish and most interventionist at all. Is that clip old? Is the clip that we played where he's talking about this never Nikki movement old? Or is it the— but, Well, he was just interviewed by Tucker about it yesterday. Okay. But—, uh, but, uh, but when he said he made his endorse, he made a negative endorsement of Nikki Haley. It was not a, an endorsement of anyone else specifically. It was a Haley is bad for these reasons because she's consistently bad on the and, foreign policy in, question. In the absence of a never Trump because he's consistently bad on sending money to Israel, it's not forthcoming. It's but less bad than Haley. All right. Well, that's something Everyone's that would be bad. an honest, a more honest statement okay. that says Donald Trump has also failed in these ways. All right. More rising for you right after this. Bad news for Justin Trudeau. A Canadian federal judge has ruled that Trudeau's controversial use of the Emergencies Act during the 2022 Freedom Convoy trucker protests in Canada was, quote, unreasonable and unjustified. Trudeau used the act to seize the bank accounts of protesters and ban public assembly in certain areas, amongst other widespread anti-protest policies. Now, as a reminder, the Freedom Convoy protests were pushed back against the government's COVID-19 vaccine vaccine mandates and lasted several weeks during the early months of 2022. In response, Trudeau's government vowed to appeal the decision, saying they believed that invoking the Emergencies Act was, quote, right and necessary at the time. Here's Trudeau's Deputy Prime Minister, Christia Freeland, on that. It was a hard decision to take. We took it very seriously after a lot of hard work, after a lot of careful deliberation. We were convinced at the time, I was convinced at the time, it was the right thing to do. It was the necessary thing to do. I remain and we remain convinced of that. But not everyone shared Freeland's support for the use of the Emergencies Act. Tucker Carlson had this to say. Thank you for your call. You have reached the media line. For all urgent requests, please send your request by email. Merci pour votre appel. Vous avez atteint la ligne médiatique. Merci beaucoup. Yes, hi. I, I couldn't understand the French part, but it's Tucker Carlson calling from the United States. And I'd be grateful if you pass a message on to the Prime Minister, Justin Trudeau. We are coming to liberate Canada. We are coming to liberate Canada. And we'll be there soon. Merci. So uh, Trudeau appealing to try to keep um, the right to use this emergency act in the future. 
Um, very concerning, I think, from a civil liberties uh, perspective. Obviously, this was a massive crackdown on protesting, um, on free speech, on uh, the the banking aspect is something that we both found very troubling. Mm -hmm. This that you could be unbanked, unpersoned financially in that way. Um, yeah. What I, again? I, I also support the their cause. They were um, organizing against having to be um, vaccinated. The tr you know, truckers being. You know, even if you're uh, buying into a—let's say you—I I don't, but let's say you buy into the need for vaccine mandates under some circumstances, this was a group of employees that are about as remote as possible, that, uh, you know, drive big trucks, don't—aren't going into a lot of offices, aren't interacting with a lot of people. Remember, that was the argument for vaccine mandates at the time, to, you know, s slow the spread, and if you're interacting with a lot of other people. Now, of course, there's also a lot of reason, I think, to doubt vaccine mandates in, in those cases as well, but, um, but truckers were an especially— sympathetic group to have an exception from that and uh, were, uh, were were subject to the um, the Emergencies Act being deployed. Yeah, it's a horrible abridgment of civil liberties. The uh, attack on people's means of kind of financial maneuvering was particularly galling, as was the rhetoric around it that it now is making all of these um, uh, Trudeau and the rest of uh, the politicians who are aligned with him really have egg on their face because they've since declared that COVID is over, COVID's not an emergency, everybody's moving on, when numerically things are not very different from where they were a year ago, um, when a lot of this was—or a year and a half or so ago when a lot of this was happening. So they kind of have to keep appealing this, because otherwise it really exposes the extent to which they weren't really tailoring their policy response mm -hmm. to what was uh, geared to have an actual political outcome. Moreover, if you genuinely did believe that it was necessary to intervene for uh, an individual to avoid uh, hospital uh, being hospitalized because they didn't want to get the bad effects of COVID and they should be uh, vaccinated. You could still be providing positive incentives for people to do those kinds of things. All of that has completely gone out the window, at least in the United States. I'm not sure. I mean, obviously, Canada has a much, much more robust health care system than we do. But Joe Biden has ended all of the po post-pandemic policies, not wanted to offer anybody carrots, much less sticks to incentivize them uh, to get vaccinated. And so the, all of, in hindsight, all of these policies that we're going to say we're going to basically disenable you to have money and pay your rent and live your life because you didn't get the vaccine seem particularly draconian. It's like you didn't even believe in it. Yeah. Former uh, Congressman Justin Amash, who's libertarian, um, I saw said on Twitter that he— um, uh, he wants uh, legislation on the U.S. side to sunset um, national emergency. That is just way too easy for government to declare a national emergency and have it go on forever. He says they, he would, uh, that when he was in the House, he introduced the National Emergencies Reform Act, which would automatically sunset emergencies after a period of 60 days unless they're reauthorized by Congress. Because that's, that's another thing. We don't just want— the, the president, and you know, if you're a Democrat, you can fear this. If it was Donald Trump, too, it's not it's not a partisan thing. Just declaring national emergencies, and do, obviously this happened in Canada, but you know, do, um, uh, uh, forcing people to either get vaccinated or you know, forcing um, services like PayPal or whatever else to to unbank it. Like that's all very concerning. At at the bare minimum, we want Congress, the more. Uh, supposedly an allegedly accountable branch to have to craft, you know, to have to vote on things, to have to craft new legislation to deal with problems as they come up, rather than just have the president, whoever it is, declare it off the top of his head. Yeah, it's really interesting to think about as uh, Biden has, without the consent of Congress, um, started bombing 
foreign countries. It's sure. also worth, worth thinking about in the context of the cop city protesters who were uh, charged under RICO statute, I think four or five dozen protesters, some of whom uh, were charged with things like participating in a bail fund to raise money for someone who had been charged and imprisoned for protesting this uh, cop city center. People were charged who had been passing out flyers, a clear demonstration of First Amendment rights. And it also uh, is relevant when you think about what's happening on college campuses right now, where you have billionaires in league with a, a small minority of uh, professors on campus and others who are making certain organizations illegal and then not even seemingly following up with uh, crimes against those students because they say the justification is that the group was not supposed to be protesting in the first instance. And I'm alluding, obviously, to the case we just had at Columbia, where two former IDF members who were students used a, a skunk, a kind of a chemical weapon that has been developed and used by the IDF on their former students, uh, on their fellow students in the midst of a peaceful protest. You have a complete disinterest map by the administration until uh, reporting by The Intercept. Yeah, really, they have taken action now. After reporting by The Intercept, made it an issue that wasn't going to go away. And over and over and over again, you see this kind of effort to silence voices on college campuses when their politics are out of step with the mainstream establishment view. So there's a lot of a lot of reasons to, to take this as a as a warning call. Yeah, I, I think uh, specifically the unauthorized war part is is very similar to this from the national emergency kind of endless justification for things. Uh, actually, I see Justin Mosh also calling for, at the bare minimum, a congressional vote to authorize um, what's—or or not authorize it, but the, the bottom line being Congress has to decide whether—I mean, you know, responding to attacks is one thing, but given the increasing involvements, for, for instance, in the Red Sea, um, it, it is at a point where, again, Congress, not the president just deciding things, the president is supposed to carry out the policies that are approved by our elected representatives. And uh, it's a shame that Congress has decided over time to delegate so much of its authority to the the executive and then just, I don't know, be celebrity entertainers or something. Yeah, I mean, I do think specifically I'm concerned about the abridgment of people's fundamental rights and privileges, their kind of Bill of Rights style uh, right. So the, the Trudeau—one, the, the war powers are significant, but the Trudeau stuff that really infringes on people's ability to freely associate. Um, with each other to assemble the way they like, to drive a truck and park it in a noisy downtown area and block track of traffic if they want. I know a lot of conservatives have been really antagonistic to people who do that in defense of Gaza and for climate reasons and the, and the like. They seem to support it when it was about truckers protesting. And I think you should keep in mind that you shouldn't criticize a mechanism of protest. Uh, when you really are upset about the underlying protest. If you don't like climate stuff, if you don't care about Gaza, that's fine. But recognize that you wanted these people to be able to use their right to protest when they were truckers protesting COVID regulations. And some of us on the left consistently defended them and their right to do that because when you start infringing on people's rights to express yourself and to have speech in those ways, it always trickles down to your side eventually. Mm. Well, we will continue to follow any developments on that front and we'll have more rising right after this. The show Glenn Greenwald recently joined a panel of other political commentators, including Destiny, Alex Jones, and the Krasenstein brothers, to discuss whether or not Trump's actions on January 6th rose to the level of a coup. Greenwald took the position that January 6th was not a coup. Here he is justifying that case. If you look at how other coups are 
perpetrated. And I think a lot of this is that if you're an American and you have this very soft history, you don't know what a coup is, you think that like what CNN tells you a coup is a coup. Usually the way coups work is the leader of the country or whoever is in charge of the military orders the military to seize control of the levers of power. Trump was the commander in chief on January 6th. The military was duty bound to obey his orders. They had a right to disobey if they were illegal, but if this were a coup, why didn't Trump order the military to seize control of the pow of power and turn over the election process to him? Why didn't he order the armed factions that form the, the law enforcement part of the military and the executive branch that serve under his command to do that as well? That's what happens in a coup. That didn't happen here because Trump wasn't trying to perpetrate a coup. Later in the panel, Greenwald got into an argument with left, well, with liberal streamer Destiny. Let's take a look. Do you want to talk about applying the same standard? Would you have been okay in the year 2000 if Gore refused to certify the vote because he didn't like what was happening in Florida? A lot of Democrats did Can want you to do that. answer that question? I, I, Glenn, answer yes, the question. Yeah, and I would have actually, yes, there, a lot of Democrats were angry about that. There I'm not asking if a lot of, of I, I'm asking you would be okay personally if he refused to certify the vote. I think there were two, there were you two You won't answer the question. In 2016, would you have been okay if, would you have been okay if Biden? One, because if you really believe that an election is stolen, as the Democrats claim they did, then it is kind of odd to say, we're just going to concede that and allow George Bush to march into power, even though we believe that he actually stole the election. Yes, that is kind of an odd no, way to go about it. It's not, it's not all that all. We live in a democracy. Ed and Brian Krasenstein attempted to deflect comparisons between the Black Lives Matter riots and the attack on the Capitol. Let's watch. I don't think that Black Lives Matter was an insurrection. I do think 1992 riots in LA was an insurrection. Uh, George did Herbert Black Walker Bush. What, Black that made it not an insurrection. What did it lack? So it was a protest and the violence was when the police clashed with the protesters. The, vi the violence was not against the government in order to stop the government from doing something. There, were, there, was, there weren't Antifa and anarchist groups there that explicitly say they were using violence to overthrow the government? That there, didn't happen? They were firebombing federal courthouses. There, God, you're, that's not true. They were, they, the bombs on the courthouses, there's nobody, it was at nighttime, there's nobody in there. They were, <laughs> they were not obstructing the anything. The firefighters they got excited. Arson's a they, serious they crime. It's a fun gathering. Surprised we didn't get our invite. So sad. Well, I've had this exact debate with... Uh, uh, Glenn Greenwald on my show, who I respect a great deal, but I do think he's playing fast and loose with definitions. Not every coup is a military coup. There is definitionally something called a soft coup, which is much closer to what's being described here. And I think that he's right that the focus on what, whatever skirmishes were happening outside of the Capitol on that given day were not the coup, any more so than, I guess, the claim that's being made here is that protests in Los Angeles in the, in the 90s somehow were tailored to overthrow the government. I think both claims are absurd. But what can be more accurately described as a coup or Trump very clearly trying to hold on to power outside of what the democratic laws of this country would dictate is him calling up several uh, elected officials in several states and plotting with them, this is what's being alleged, to put together fake slates of electors that do not reflect what the people in the state did on voting day, but different wrong made up 
felonious results that were then sent to the Capitol. And Mike Pence was supposed to say there's ambiguity here. I'm going to certify the fake. Uh, you know, I can't decide whether the fake slate or the real slate is the appropriate thing. So we're just going to pump this to Congress, who, because of the distribution of Congress, would have elected Trump. That is a soft coup. That is a plan. Now, that probably has to be proven. These courts have to prove that that it was, in fact, what was taken, taking place. But that is clearly an action tailored toward making sure the, elect uh, the election results were not respected. That is not the same thing as someone trying to storm the Capitol or someone um, uh, protesting Black Lives Matter, uh, protesting the murder of George Floyd, or someone protesting um, in the L.A. riots, or anything like that, none of which has any connection to actually changing the power dynamic at the top of our government. Well, but it's a little similar, I think, to what Glenn said there about um, the actions in the 2000 election. Like, if you actually think it's illegitimate, are you not you know, bound to to refuse to certify fake results. And then the 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 argument is going to I mean, Trump is going to have to make this case, but say that, you know, he sincerely believe, you know, when he makes the call to Brad Raffensperger and other people, you know, uh, seriously thinking that uh, votes in his favor have not been counted and he's wrong about all of that, but that the actions he's taking were to were to rectify um, results that were illegal and in fact unfair to him. And then also, Coup—look, you can call it a coup if you want. The, the language to disqualify Trump from the ballot is specifically—is not a coup, it's insurrection. And I think an insurrection does, if you go by, like, a dictionary definition, involve not just extra-legal means of staying in power, but a kind of direction to a militia to use violence um, to, to hold territory and that kind of thing. Well, so that is not— the debate here is whether it's a coup, not an insurrection. Right. The word insurrection is used— But insurrection is, a, is the language in the Right. In the but the, the reason—that's what I'm saying, that the reason the insurrection language is used is because they're trying to bar Trump from the ballot under the insurrection clause, but that's not right. the context of this debate. This debate is about the word coup and whether or not Trump did a coup, and Glenn pretending like every coup—or I shouldn't say pretending, but Glenn defining coup as necessarily violent in the way that you could potentially do with insurrection, I think, is a sleight of hand. Moreover, it's important to know that the Trump's, Trump's wrongdoing wasn't wanting to make sure that the votes were tallied. The, the, there were um, legal efforts by Trump's team all across the country to check and double-check election results. The problem was that within, like, well before Inauguration Day, Trump's own experts, Trump's own legal advisors, Trump's own cabinet was telling him, no, sir, you lost the election. And he kept trying to look for alternative uh, experts, dismissing the people who had been a part of his team until he find someone, found someone who had gotten the right answer. So the comparison to the year 2000, if Al Gore said, let's just take a beat, let's take these next few months before, a uh, few weeks before January 20th to run our legal cases, see what actually happened in Florida, count and recount the ballots. That's that not would the not issue. be a coup. No, that's not, would not be the coup. And that's not, it wasn't a coup when Donald Trump did that too. What Donald Trump is being accused of doing that is a coup is not having legal, Jill Stein had a legal case to try to see what the uh, ballot results were in what Michigan or one of those Midwest, Wisconsin, one of those Midwestern states. That is not a coup. That is your legal right to engage in a legal process to see if, see if the election was held fairly and accurately. What was the problem was that Trump's advisors all told him after that happened, everything was kosher and you lost. And he continued to put into effect machinations to make the outcome in his favor regardless. Right. I mean, he's, he, he was saying that the results were illegitimate, had not been counted properly, and so there should be special—the mechanism for dealing with that is to have special legislative sessions 
to, 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 to throw it to the legislators in the state to determine what the electors should be. No. What, yes. what, the, what the plot wasn't, oh, I guess. That he was wrong about The that. legislators were not saying, based on this other information that is substantiated and real, right. we're going to submit it's a fake state for His... elections. He's saying they made up results, and we're, the plan was, this is this is from, I'm sorry, um, I'm blocking the guy's name, from the, this is the stated plan in, the, in that, that memo, um, that the, the point was the ambiguity. The point was that you didn't have time in the, in the fog of all of the confusion to not be able to challenge the fake state of electors, which was not based on anything, and that we were going to be able to say, well, the ambiguity of having two slates here compels me well, the, to throw this to the, the House. Not that there was a legitimate basis on which the fake slate of electors come to, came to their outcome. I mean, the electors were—the the, the fake electors were going to be improper because the vote actually had been tabulated correctly the first time, and it should just be based on what the votes and were And they the knew states. that. Well, but okay, but they, you have to prove that Trump knew that, right, that he didn't actually believe that. Obviously, but we've already had a bunch of people flip, and a bunch and of that he was actually involved in the, and that he specifically directed and organized people to take right, those actions right. on his behalf. Like I said, that that has, I said that has to be right. proven. But well. we've already had people who are conscripted into this plan say, "Oh, I thought I was only signing this as a last case scenario. I didn't think this was actually going to be submitted. I thought that I was signing this document." that was only going to be used if the recount showed that Trump had actually won, not that it was going to lie and, and, and be used to create confusion at the Capitol so that Mike Pence could justify throwing it to the House. We have people who are part of this scheme who've come out and said that. Like, I didn't, I didn't realize—I mean, they're also trying to cover their own— Behind, so grain of salt. But they've come forward and said, "Well, I, I wasn't, I wasn't trying to represent that. I had some special knowledge that the tallies were any different than what you knew. All I knew was that I'm signing this in case the experts come back and say we have new numbers here. Experts did not come back and say there's new numbers here. They told Donald Trump, in fact, I know, but Trump didn't agree with them and didn't believe them. Right, but this is this is them. the problem, Robbie. If I if I tell you this cup is black. We get 15 experts in here to say the cup is black. I see, I have you on camera whispering to someone else saying, I know the cup is black, but we gotta, we gotta find a way to make this cup blue. You can't just sit here and maintain, because my subjective belief is that this cup is a color other than black, that I shouldn't go to jail for fraudulently lying well, to the American people to, about the that's cup. That's what they have to prove. Right, but Trump's only defense is that he subjectively believed that there was fraud when everybody who was working for him and all of these Republicans— I don't Republicans, think it's a stretch that he actually believes that. And all of these Republicans— Listen states, to him. He still says it. I know he still says it. And the point is, you cannot just claim—I can't right, go well, into a store and claim, well, I, I, I thought I'd already paid for all of these items and walk out and steal. At a certain point, your subjective belief in the face of all of the evidence to the contrary and some tacit acknowledgement that you know better, frankly, in some of, in some of these cases, in some of this reporting, is not enough to protect you. And so that that is what the coup is. I agree with Glenn's insofar as the people breaking into the Capitol were not the coup. That was not a coup, any more so than any protest. Trump exhausted every legal means and then some questionably legal and perhaps extra legal means to stay in power for which he's being prosecuted coup goes a little far for me, and insurrection goes very far, but we will see if the court agrees. More rising right after this. The right-wing activist behind Libs of TikTok has been appointed for a key position at the Oklahoma Department of Education. Top Oklahoma school official Ryan Walters has appointed Libs of TikTok head Chaya Ratchik to the Library Media Advisory Committee at the State Department of Education. 
Libs of TikTok often post videos about LGBTQ plus teachers in schools, classifying them as groomers. Walter said in a statement, Haya Rychik is on the front lines showing the world exactly what the radical left is all about, lowering standards, porn in schools, and pushing woke indoctrination on our kids. Her unique perspective is invaluable as part of my plan to make Oklahoma schools safer for kids and friendlier to parents, per the Huffington Post. It's interesting that he raises the idea of lowering standards, given that I couldn't find any evidence that uh, this woman would be qualified to do any job in education whatsoever. And there are some obvious conflicts of interest here to have someone working on a school board that seems not to respect the basic rights of gay people in this country to even be teachers in the first place. Yeah, I mean, it's the the board for the, for the library, specifically. Um, I mean, I have a hard time seeing this as anything other than um, of kind of own the libs stunt. Uh, I think she has, you know, every right to post on social media criticisms of wokeness and the other things she sees. But just as I wouldn't want like Robin D'Angelo or Ibram X. Kendi on the library board because they're like deeply committed left-wing activist type people with shoddy scholarship, um, I similarly don't think this person who's kind of a performer social media personality. You remember X Kendi and here. Robin D'Angelo scholarship makes Raya Chaddick, uh, Raya Chaddick, I should say, makes their scholarship look like their um, uh, Nobel Prize laureates uh, who should be esteemed above all else. They have, at the bare minimum, written books uh, and been degreed in some areas of rele relevant expertise here. Um, I mean, Raya Chaddick, this is someone who um, has been part of many a kind of cancel culture book ban campaign against a number of books that are considered to be classics in American literature. Uh, it really does seem like certain Republicans are pushing a kind of authoritarian overreach that has already been proven to be not especially successful politically. We're now in a realm where the candidates in the Republican primary who branded themselves largely as anti-woke candidates, both Ron DeSantis and Vivek Ramaswamy, have fallen out. Um, even Donald Trump doesn't hit those notes as hard as those two ever did. And it seems like that lesson is slowly perhaps being going to be learned in other parts of the country. We'll see what kind of local pushback there is to this clearly kind of a political appointment that doesn't seem well tailored to actually improving the education of kids in Oklahoma. Yeah, Oklahoma ranks 48th out of 50 states for the quality of education, so they have a long way to go. Um, again, I don't have any problem with efforts to get um, to have parents exercise some control over whether there are graphically pornographic books on the shelves or age-inappropriate material. Um, some of this is certainly going too far and banning or having or resulting in in Florida and other places uh, titles being taken off the shelves that I think are perfectly fine. Um, this seems honestly like a case where most reasonable people can draw a clear line that, again, the one book with the picture of someone performing fellatio on a dildo is not age appropriate for the school library and 
the bluest eye is fine and like we don't need to have some big fight over it or I wish we didn't. Unfortunately uh, we do because these book bans are happening all across the country. Uh, the response to this has obviously been varied. Ken Klippenstein weighed in. Obviously we have him on a guest in the show all the time and he is known for doing reporting that are based on uh, FOIA requests. He quote tweeted this story from Rolling Stone writing FOIA time. That tweet has gotten over 18,000 likes and there's a lot of pushback and anger in the replies. The obvious implication here is that because she's now a part uh, of the government that she is now vulnerable to getting these freedom of information requests and who knows what that might turn up. I don't know if that's something that she wants to necessarily expose herself to up until this point. She's largely been a private citizen who's able to, been able to have the protections of, of a private citizen. Yeah, like I said, seems like a not particularly well thought out stunt for attention and we should not have that. Yes. This is also a little bit of egg on your face for certain conservatives who stress the idea that black people, women, and other minorities are not qualified for their jobs because of DEI or other affirmative action style policies. Charlie Kirk made this argument pretty loud recently, and it's interesting to think about in the context of uh, Chaya being appointed with no qualifications whatsoever to this board in Oklahoma. Let's take a look at what Charlie Kirk had to say. And that's why I think this United story and the DEI story yes. hits so hard because we've all been in the back of a plane when the turbulence hits or when you're flying through a storm and you're like, I'm so glad I saw the guy with the right stuff and the square jaw get into the cockpit before we took off. And I feel better now. Thank you. No, I mean, about like, that. you want to go thought crime? Like, I'm sorry. If I see a black pilot, I'm going to be like, boy, I hope he's qualified. Well, that's the you wouldn't have done that. You wouldn't have. You wouldn't have done that before. That's not an immediate. No, you wouldn't have done that before. That's not who I am. That's no. not what I believe. Yeah, I mean, what he's saying though is that because of, and I don't know that this is what is in place at United, but because of affirmative action or race-based hiring or admissions, um, it causes some people to uh, wrongly and unfairly question whether people who are admitted or hired under those specifications are thus are then not as qualified as other people, which is very, I'm sure, damaging and racist toward those people, which is why we just shouldn't practice we should practice colorblind hiring and admissions. Well, I think it really demonstrates a lot of ignorance um, uh, about what the affirmative action process actually is. The point is that if you have two qualified candidates, you can then move to other factors to try to get more demographic diversity or economic diversity, people who are poor, people who are from different parts of the country, things like that, at least when we're talking about college admissions. Um, if you want to live in a world where people, you know, everybody I mean, in college— That's not how it's worked for college admissions. It but. is how it's worked. That's literally—quota systems were made unconstitutional in the 1970s. So that's quite literally how affirmative action policies work. I mean, and certainly it's black not. pilots have to. It is. It's and black pilots not. have they to use pass all of the same laws and, and regulations and rules, obviously, as white pilots. Court decisions in the early so, 2000s, they used systems that assigned points to people based on race. Right. That's not a quota system. So that, what well, I said not, stands that's not true. E no, that's not equal, equally qualified people. Yes, it is. If you pass a bare minimum assessment of what it qualifies you to get into a school, you, like what I said, you can then move. Well, I'm talking more broadly than school. You got I'm talking more about points for your race than your ACT and SAT score. That, that is absolutely true. That's, that's not true, Robbie. It is, in fact, true. When you look at who is admitted to these uh, first of all, I'd love for, I know you'd love for this racist statement from, Robbie, uh, uh, from Charlie Kirk to be uh, not the subject of the conversation, but what we're talking about is Charlie Kirk saying that pilots who attain the exact same number of flight hours 
and pass the exact same tests to get to become pilots who have no indication that their track record of crashes is higher than anybody else. As you pointed out in a recent episode, the number of planes that actually go down are so incredibly low that it's a statistical anomaly in the first instance. And I couldn't find any instances in which a black pilot was involved, despite all of in, in a crash. Despite all of that, Charlie Kirk still feels comfortable saying that he is going to cast judgments and be concerned about whether or not he's going to die when he's in a plane piloted by a black person. And instead of looking at, that looking at that and saying, well, maybe I should revise how I'm judging other people of minority backgrounds and other aspects of my life, and that that is my own internalized bigotry and racism, he's justifying it in a very similar way that you seem to be justifying it here, that saying, then saying the reality of affirmative action compels me to have a racist view uh, as I carry out my life. And all of that in the, in, the, in the face of obvious evidence that, for example, Raya Chaddock, with no qualifications, is being appointed to a, an important district position in Oklahoma. Well, what did I say and no evidence. And, and also with the evidence that something like 40%, I don't know, it's not something like, actually 40% of Harvard admittees, uh, uh, people who are admitted to Harvard, are either legacies or athletes. And they shouldn't but do no that one is, But no one is... Uh, what do you mean no one? I Here I am, a person, saying that those, all those things were a bad idea. No one outside of this table, the, uh, overwhelming, the overwhelming force of the, uh, the, the uh, attacks from people like... Uh, Charlie Kirk and the people from his political cohort are attacking affirmative action. Where has Charlie Kirk or Christopher Rufo launched a national political campaign against legacy? Not performatively saying, oh, legacies are bad too, the way that you've just done, but actually asking for segments to be produced on this show, which has never happened, on the legacy crisis. I, have, I don't see people in the wings saying, oh, we gotta, do, we gotta do another legacy segment because it's such an unconscionable slight on the American education system that so many people, poor, stupid rich kids, are getting allowed into school because their parents happen to go to those same kinds of schools. That is absolutely not the kind of conversation we're having. And it's worth asking the question why the focus is specifically on race and at sometimes gender and very much so LGBTQ people and not ever on the bulk of the college classes, which are made up of people who are, don't deserve to be there because, because their parents are rich. Because there was a legal justification for fighting it on the race grounds, given that racial discrimination is illegal and discrimination based on legacy status is not. I would be absolutely fine for all of those policies to be stripped away, and I've called for them to be stripped away over and over again. I support them being stripped away. So, so what are we having an argument about? But your about? contention is that there's no way to get rid of legacy no, you, you want to get rid of the legacy Wait, no. programs and keep just there, the race-based No, your contention just there is there's no way to get rid, I want of, to get rid of both of them. Your contention just there is that there's no way to get rid of a legacy program because it is not a uh, legacy status is not a constitutionally protected status, and therefore we shouldn't try to change policies in the United States of America. No, I didn't say we shouldn't try to change policies. So I think that's is, why they brought lawsuits so what over the, the race. No, stuff. then what is the excuse for not having people like Christopher Rufo ever trying to challenge those kind of policies? There are many ways to because there wasn't a legal them. justification to that's do it. That's not true. You're saying that you can only challenge something if it's a constitutionally protected class. There's not any other kind of lawsuit that can be brought. There's not any other kind of protest I mean, movement that can happen. you love to do, we can't do X until we can't, we do Y, and if we do, like... What are you talking what, about? This is the same thing as the, um, as, as the, but we can't hold anyone accountable for plagiarism until we have uh, Alan Dershowitz hauled before a committee or something. What are you talking about? We should hold racial everybody accountable for plagiarism. Racial discrimination is wrong. I've said that a They should times. not use racial, they should not practice racial discrimination in hiring or admissions. They fought to, to, the, the, the law forbids it, and a, a group of people who had been discriminated against in concert with conservative scholars, activists, and groups, et cetera, fought to establish that policy, which I agree. All right. Sorry. Well, Tough. You, you agree. You and Charlie Kirk of one mind on this one, I see. More right Not on, you. no, 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 no. 
No, I did not say that. And how is I, your argument different from Charlie Kirk's that because of the existence of DEI programs, it's not my fault that I think that black pilots are worse and they're going to crash? I my did plane. not say that I think that black pilots are worse. Frankly, you're correct that the statistics for crashing planes are zero. They're, they're perfectly not safe. Zero. They're virtually they're not zero. zero. The last a woman was sucked out of a plane. Uh, like two, okay. two to two and forty thousand people died in car traffic in the last year. Like we got to put things in perspective. Planes are extremely. Well, you're safe. the one that's claiming it's to... zero. I'm not saying it's not extremely oh safe. It's just not zero. So what's your point? It's extremely safe, and so the the pushback I would give is that there's no point scaring people into thinking planes are going to follow the sky for any because <laughs> there's a black pilot or for any reason they're just not. But it's there, very but safe. But there is a point in scaring someone out of thinking, oh my gosh, this professor is black, and therefore my kids are going to die in a Harvard classroom because the dean is a black person. Well, no one is saying that. Well, they literally are. The pop, the, the 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 political force is to focus on whether or not it is somehow. A, t a terrifying problem, something that needs to be on the front page of the New York Times for weeks at a time is wrong. because of affirmative action. That's what yes. it is. And the stakes of, of a black person becoming a professor or whatever other, uh, a student in a classroom are obviously so much lower than what we're talking about with pilots. So why is it then that there's so much agita around it is the question. I don't understand how you can have a higher, a lower standard for pilots and say, well, they're, they're just pilots. And I, I guess I can accept that there's, it's racist to say that pilots, uh, that pilots are equally safe, but not similarly understand that the, the margins of errors and the risks ass assessment and what the stakes are are so much lower in all of these other kinds of contexts. Yeah, I don't follow what you're saying. The people should be hired not based on their the color of their skin. Yes, it's as and, simple and as that. And regrettably, what we're not, what the big part of the story that's being mis, mis, uh, missed out is that study after study after study shows that people are being hired on the basis of the color of their skin, and those people are white people, and that people of color are systemically discriminated against in the hiring context. context. If you take the exact same resume and change the names on it so the one is a black identified name and one is a white identified name, the black identified name not only gets hired at less frequency, they get discriminated against in the housing lottery, uh, housing application process, and on and on down the line. But we want to live in a country where we say that kind of discrimination, because it's tacit and not explicit, gets allowed, and any uh, any efforts to remedy that are racist because they're right. not we colorblind. Can't, we can't, and that's the scenario that we're in now. We can't make illegal people's innate racial feelings, but we can get rid of explicit policies aimed at curbing the number of college campuses Asian people allowed to go there. You, you and can't, it is you a can. good and thing that we did we'll that. Be, I'm happy we did it. I hope we continue. You can address people's innate racial uh, right, biases. We can and we did so, them in... We did so with the Civil Rights Act of 1964, which maybe you don't agree with. Maybe you don't think that was right and that we shouldn't have protected classes in the first place. I think that would probably be better not to have protected classes okay. at all. So again, I'm not really seeing a lot of room for disagreement with you here and the arguments that's be, that are being made by Charlie Kurt. All right, well, you can decide for yourself, audience. More rising right after this. Actress Anne Hathaway walked out of a Vanity Fair photo shoot yesterday in support of publishing company Condé Nast Union Walkout. A, a source told Variety they hadn't even started taking photos yet. Once Anne was made aware of what was going on, she just got up from hair and makeup and left. Let's look at what was going on at the Condé Nast Union picket line yesterday. Hey, hey. Oh, oh. 
NPR correspondent David Folkenflik wrote on X yesterday, LA Times confirms that 115 journalists laid off about 23 percent of the newsroom, which will be at approximately 385 people left. Now note that taken in combination with last year's layoffs, the Los Angeles Times has lost about one-third of its newsroom in less than a year, which goes to show you the just terrible climate for the media right now. Um, yeah, every day yeah. we hear about layoffs, downsizing, et cetera. It's a uh, it's a bad time to be in the media Yeah, industry. I saw uh, David Sirota of The Lever waited, and he was pointing out that uh, all of the big news channels still rely on the gumshoe reporting of smaller outlets, of individual reporters, individual journalists breaking stories and the like, but they simply aren't being supported, and those journalists don't get as much funding as talking heads on mainstream TV, with you know who could not do their jobs without that reporting. So this does really seem like a short-sighted plan and, and something that is going to increasingly drive people to abandon big media altogether and go try to find individual sources of reporting that share their values and are doing the kind of work that they like, whether it's someone like Jordan Cheriton over at Status Quo, who we have on the show from time to time, people like The Lever. Um, we, so we talk about so many stories that are broken by those smaller outlets who are not at all compensated in the same way that these big news channels, who have the resources in many cases, but are choosing not to support uh, the staff members. I mean, who have the resources, but have a very fraught business model that's not really worked out for them in the era of the internet, um, and they they have not figured out how to make it sustainable, and they're you know they're losing, so they've had to lose staff, you know, over and over again. I mean, they they haven't made it work. Local news doesn't it's just is not profitable the way it way it used to be when you had you know newspaper subscriptions, that kind of thing. So Anne Hathaway got a lot of plaudits online for walking out. Uh, just for background as to what's going on at Condé Nast, uh, the union has filed two unfair labor practices, this is reporting from The Hollywood Reporter, against Condé Nast with the NLRB since the this layoff announcement, which happened on November 1st. They claim the union surveilled and intimidated um, union members while trying to gain clarity about the layoffs, and that happened on three different occasions. Uh, and moreover, uh, they said that they've uh, engaged in regressive bargaining, so downsizing a severance offer uh, after employees uh, complained about the proposal, which would cut 94 union jobs, which amounts to 20 percent uh, of the union. They provided a, a less a less uh, advantageous severance package uh, in the course of these negotiations. So I don't know that this is looking to get resolved anytime soon. We obviously saw some footage from the one-day walkout. Uh, we'll update you if any more uh, such actions are planned. But certainly, the fact that this got so much attention because of Anne Hathaway's behavior, I think, does say something significant about the power that people with high uh, profiles celebrities have and actually engaging politically in these ways. She didn't even have to say anything. She simply left her photo shoot, and there have been headlines up the wazoo about her choice to do so. I <laughs> I missed all these headlines, but maybe it's getting a lot of attention in entertainment news or something. Or I just Googled uh, it. If you're Variety, an, Axios, an, an CNN, Hathaway, uh, Washington Post, The Hollywood yeah. Reporter, uh, all of these outlets uh, have covered oh. the story and framing are framing it as Anne Hathaway uh, walks out. How bold and how brave. I just like these media companies are all failing. They don't, their business models don't work. They have to, they, they're, they have too many people. They have too many employees. They can't pay them all. They got to lay people off. I don't like. I don't know what what's there to strike about. The business model is failing. These companies are not profitable. They're 
way too top heavy, and so they gotta they gotta cut people loose. If they're top heavy, why would you be cutting people at the bottom? I mean, they're bottom heavy. They're heavy in all directions. <laughs> well, they I don't think you need... were right the first time. Condé Nast uh, turned a profit of nearly two billion dollars in 2021, which I think is just the last year that I can pull up here, uh, the most recent year. Oh, here we go. Uh, revenue grew at Condé last last year, shy of Target. Revenue of nearly two billion dollars. Uh, this is from a February 2023 article in the New York Times. Um, so, you know, the question is how much profit is enough and whether or not if you have a, a policy, which is typically how businesses run under capitalism, of, of expecting infinite, um, infinite growth, then at a certain point to achieve that artificial sense of infinite growth, you're going to have to start laying people off, even if the business is itself sustainable. And I think that's the, that's the question at hand here. I mean, yeah. Um. I guess so. Um, what else do we have to say about this segment? Um, Hillary Clinton, you wanted to talk about her? Oh, well, an interesting um, move from the uh, former Secretary of State. She tweeted out in solidarity of what has been described as a snub of the uh, Barbie movie in these Oscar nominations. You might be aware that America Ferreira was nominated for Best Supporting Actress, and I believe there were some other uh, nominations. Uh, Kent, um, Ryan Gosling. Ryan Gosling was nominated uh, for his role as Ken, but the lead role, Margot Robbie, was not nominated, nor was uh, director uh, Greta Gerwig. Yeah, I saw a lot, of, a lot of complaining about that, including from Hillary Clinton. Um, so what did you make of that? Uh, specifically, uh, I'm going to read the Hillary uh, Clinton tweet. She says, Greta and Margot, while it can sting to win the bo box office but not take home the gold, your millions of fans love you. You're both so much more than Kanaf. I saw Ken Klippenstein hop in the replies saying, uh, Barbie should have gone to Wisconsin. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously drawing parallels Look, between Hillary Clinton's kind of licked wound yeah. remarks after she lost her race and, and, and these two women. I liked the movie. I enjoyed it. I don't know that it was like the best movie ever, so I don't, I'm not losing, I'm, I, I don't, and don't I mean, sound like a hater, it was a good movie. But uh, people seemed really upset. I guess it's the optics of like the one person getting nominated. I mean, they get not, got nominated for a bunch of things, just not um, best director. Right? They got best. She got Greta Gerwig got best adapted screenplay or something like that. I think it was just not um, director and not That's an award right. for Margot Robbie. There are all very talented people. It was a good movie. Maybe that. I have some people saying that's reinforcing the message of the movie, that the man in it is the one who, who's benefiting from it. But it was, yeah. it was a really good performance frankly, from I Ryan think, Gosling. I think the movie was not that good. But frankly, I think that America Ferreira, who I really like as an actress, I like all of these people. This isn't personal. Um, also, it's bizarre that she was nominated for Best Supporting Actress for that role. I just don't get it. When you look at who these people are up against, so if you look at the Best Actress category, it's Emma Stone and Poor Things, Lily Gladstone and Killers of the Flower Moon, who just was phenomenal, Annette Bening and Nyad, which I haven't seen, Carrie Mulligan and Maestro, which I didn't love, but she did a good job. She did a very good job. Um, and Sandra Huller in Anatomy of the Fall, which I also didn't see. The idea that Margot Robbie kind of stiffly walking around as Barbie is compelling as Lily Gladstone's performance, where you watch a three-hour, like, holocaust of her family and community, I I'm sorry, it's just... It's, it's almost embarrassing, I feel like, for Hillary Clinton and others to be putting Margot Robbie in a position where she has to defend her performance against these other really meaningful Oscar-worthy performances. It's Ryan Gosling no said something, too. Yes. Ryan Gosling... Um said that uh, that um, there's no Ken without Barbie, there's no Barbie movie without Greta Gerwig. To say that I'm disappointed they're not nominated would be an understatement, um, and so on.
Yeah, and when you look at best screenplay, similarly, it's a really, there's a lot of really great pieces in there. I mean, The Holdovers was kind of a sleeper hit. I really enjoyed it. Um, May, December, I, maybe Barbie can be in there if May, December's in there. I know people had mixed feelings about it. That's the Mary Kay Letourneau-esque um, Netflix movie um, about a, oh, a teacher yeah. who uh, has I a, didn't see so many of these movies you just mentioned. Right. And I I've saw heard great, very few of these. I, I saw great, Barbie and Oppenheimer. I've heard great things about Past Lives, which is another one of these um, uh, screenplay awards, Anatomy of the Fall, and Maestro. So again, you know, maybe there's a better claim there that Barbie is a better adapted screenplay, like, like an original screenplay, rather. Oh, no, it's an adapted screenplay, right? Bar the Barbie, they say it's a, it, yeah. it actually did get that category. Yeah, right? So what are no, we actually did. complaining about uh, here? I don't get understand. Best Director. Best Director. Yeah. Right. Okay. With Scorsese? Yeah. yeah. Uh, and Christopher Nolan. Uh, uh, yeah. I'm sorry. That's the that's the complaint. It's okay. If the, if you didn't want Ryan Gosling to be the one with the acting accolades coming out of that movie, you should have written Barbie to have a personality instead of trying to protect her as a perfect character. The reason Ryan Gosling characters was good because they allowed him to be flawed. So that is I think another reason why she doesn't deserve best adapted screenplay because she wrote she wrote it in a way that precluded Barbie from ever getting any recognition for that role because it wasn't deserved based on what was on the page. Yeah. All right, that's our take on Barbie and labor and whatever else we were talking about. That does it for us for today. Tomorrow on Rising, Brianna and I will be back, and we can't wait. <laughs> be sure to like, share, and subscribe so you never miss any content. And for those of you who prefer to listen while you're on the go, we are now available anywhere you listen to podcasts. Bye-bye.